This past uh, Wednesday evening at the uh, youth group, it was my turn in the rotation to teach. And so um, I kicked off a, a new curriculum that we just acquired uh, that will take our youth group through the entire Bible over the next two years. So uh, I'm really excited about that, that they're going to be uh, each week exposed to a different book of the Bible. Um, and we're hoping that the, the net result of this is, is students who are, more, uh, are better equipped to, to know the Word of God, to share the Word of God, to, to receive it and live it out in their lives. And I know uh, that will yield great fruit in and through them. And so we're excited about that. But the, the passage that I had uh, last week and the, the title of the, of the lesson had to do with seeing Jesus all throughout the Scriptures, not just in the New Testament, but seeing Jesus uh, even in the Old Testament. And the sermon text or the message text that I was working through was Acts chapter 8, that passage you know well where Philip uh, sees the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's led by the, the Spirit to go and, and uh, connect with him. And, and the eunuch is reading from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, specifically, chapter 53 is mentioned there in Acts chapter 8. And as, as Philip approaches the eunuch, he asks him, hey, do you, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, I need someone to help me understand. And so we're told in verse 35 that beginning with this same scripture that is from Isaiah, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And so I asked the teens, I said, well, when it says scripture here, what, what scripture are we talking about? And, and it became clear as we, as we worked through the question that it wasn't anything from the New Testament. So Philip is evangelizing someone with the good news, not from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. That's because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. It hadn't been compiled. It wasn't, he didn't have access to it. He simply had the Old Testament. And, and it's really interesting that you can preach the gospel from there. Really, that's what every sermon in the book of Acts is. It's a, a follower of Jesus preaching about him from the Old Testament. And for the two decades following the resurrection, that's, that's exactly what the church was built upon, the, the apostolic testimony and ministry based in the Old Testament, but then on their eyewitness accounts through word and sacrament. But as that first generation of Christians began to die off, it was oppressed upon the church that their uh, accounts and their teachings and the implications of the things uh, concerning Christ had to be recorded. And so their testimonies and their sermons and their teaching began to be recorded and copied. Look what Luke has to say here in the beginning of his gospel as he talks about the manner in which uh, it originated. He says here at the very beginning in verse 1, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Look at some of the key words in there. The, that first verse has the word fulfillment. So there's this idea that Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures that, that God's people had from what we call the Old Testament. Eyewitnesses. So there's, there's testimony of people who witnessed and saw things and were telling their stories. And of course, there's the notion of accuracy that underlies all of Luke's heart here. He wants to, 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 to do the homework and find out what the truth is concerning these things and make sure that his record is exact. And of course, there were people alive and his, at the time that he composed his gospel who were there, who could offer their testimony and, and could ensure the accuracy and the, the historicity of the things he had to write. That's at the heart of his gospel. Jesus preached and taught 
his disciples listened and recalled and then preached the truth of Christ. And within just a matter of years, the accounts had been investigated and faithfully recorded and then immediately copied and circulated. And what's amazing about this whole process, when you compare it to the other works of of antiquity and in, in the ancient world, is just how soon it all happened after the events that took place. You know, within 20 years of the resurrection, the first accounts are being recorded and copied and circulated. And that may seem like a long time to you and I. Remember last week we talked about how you and I rely on, you know, truth written down in a book or, or preserved in the cloud on a, so we can access it on a computer screen. But to, to people of that day, it was an, an oral society and they valued memory and repetition and exactitude as they shared facts and details and truth from one person in one generation to the next. And so for people like that, 20 years was nothing. I mean, the, 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 the figures in the stories were still there. They were still telling their stories, and it was their stories that they preached and they taught, and they rehearsed day in and out, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And so, exact memory plays a part in how the truth was preserved and transmitted. And remember, for Judaism and then also for Christianity, historicity is everything. You lose the history, you lose the salvation. And so this issue of historicity is something that, that permeates the, 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 the origin of all, this, of all the New Testament scriptures here. There's got to be something to what's being said. It's not just ideas or philosophies. It is God at work to save people in space and time. And we'll, we'll focus more on this next week. We're going we're gonna to take next week to shift gears just a touch and talk about a defense of the historicity of the resurrection. And if you were in the Wesley class a couple of months ago when I taught, it's gonna be along the same kind of lines of what we did there. But I wanna expand that to the whole church and offer that to the whole church. That's where we'll be next week. The accounts of Jesus were remembered, repeated, and then recorded while the original people were still there to ensure their accuracy. And so God's word was written down. And over time, a multitude of copies was made, unlike anything that's ever been seen in the history of the world. And if you look across the vast amount of manuscript copies that, that biblical scholars have access to today when they're trying to reconstruct those, those original works of the New Testament authors, what you'll find is something of a problem. And the problem is this. As, the, as you assess all the, the fragmentation in all the copies of, of manuscripts that, that exist, there are small discrepancies throughout them. In other words, there are what are called variants. You have you have. One manuscript will say this, but another one will say it slightly differently. And so we, we have to rely on what's called textual criticism to, to figure out how we can be sure that we have the most accurate, authentic, original words that were handed down through the church from the, throughout the generations. Now, textual criticism does not mean, like you may be thinking when you see that word, that we're going to be critical or skeptical or negative about God's word. That's not the type of criticism. Usually when, when you and I think about criticism, we're thinking about someone insulting you, right? How dare they criticize me? That's not what textual criticism is at all. No, it is the science of recovering the original text of the Greek New Testament from the available evidence. The original autographs no longer exist. We don't have you know, Luke's gospel as he, as he originally composed it. We don't have the original copy that was written down. We have copies of of that original autograph. And so we have to reconstruct what the original autograph said by a very tedious 
and painstaking comparison of the tens of thousands of portions of text from the early centuries of the church. All right, so we're going to talk this morning about this, this process of textual criticism and how we arrive at, the, at the, the Bibles that we have here today. So let's do a little history lesson here. So all the New Testament writers in the first century composed their works in Greek. And for the next three centuries, thousands and thousands of copies were made very quickly and became very widespread. So all around the known world, these copies were being made and spread around. And over time, as scribes made copies, various discrepancies or differences, or what we'll call variants, developed, usually based in a geographical location, which gave rise to what are called manuscript families. So you have, for example, the Alexandrian manuscript family, and the Western family, and the Byzantine family. These are whole families of thousands of manuscripts that are common based on how they differ from the others. And they're geographically located. And you can understand why. Imagine you're a scribe and somewhere in, you know, somewhere in Europe, and you're, you're making a copy of a copy. And in, in that process, you make a slight mistake or you make a slight adjustment to what you're copying. And then the next person takes your copy and they make copies of what you did. And then that copy is copied. And so suddenly you have in one place, a, a variant has occurred and now a whole family of, of copies are made around that variant. And it's real easy to imagine if we did the same thing in here. If I asked all of you to, to take an original work and make a copy of it, and then go to a different room, and then make copies of the copies, you would think over time, you see the different rooms would have maybe different, whole different um, variations from, from one another. They may be slight. Maybe you're so perfect you do it without any flaws, and I know that this church could pull that off. But other churches, the ones down the street, they would start making little mistakes here and there, and those differences would be confined to those different regions. And so you have whole manuscript families that arose over time. These variants, as you can imagine, are classified as either accidental, and so you have uh, perhaps a, 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 a manuscript is being read aloud, and a scribe is making a copy. Perhaps he heard something wrong, and he, and he wrote it down wrongly, or perhaps uh, his, his penmanship was, was poor, and the next person didn't understand. Maybe there was a, a bad punctuation mark or, or a, word, a character that was off, and so those, those, are, those would be accidental errors that introduce variance into the, the manuscripts. Or sometimes there are intentional changes. Perhaps a scribe felt the need to correct what seemed like an error. Maybe he thought there was a doctrinal error contained or a grammatical error or, or some other error. And so to harmonize and theologically or perhaps to harmonize with, with other manuscripts, there were changes that were made intentionally. And we'll come back to this, uh, this, this issue here uh, in a moment. But we're, we're still going through our, our, our history lesson. So you have uh, the original composition in the first century in Greek. You have the, the, the widespread um, copying and circulation in the next several centuries. Now, by the, late, by, by the seventh century, no one in the, the known world was, was using Greek except in the Byzantine Empire. So as Rome collapses and, and the world changes, you have what's, what's left of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. And it's there where Greek is continued. So copies are continuing in Greek. But in other places of the world, it's, it's starting, you're starting to see trans, translations in different uh, languages throughout the medieval period. You have translations done in Syriac and in, um, and in Latin and in um, other uh, languages such as uh, Coptic and, and so on and so forth. Now, it wasn't until the 1500s 
that we have what's called the first critical Greek New Testament that was created. And this was created um, by a Dutch Catholic priest named Erasmus. And you may have heard that name before, sitting in a church listening to a sermon or in a, a Sunday school class, a pretty significant figure in, in church, in world history, really. Um, his goal was to, to, to take the evidence that he had access to and produce, a, ultimately, a superior Latin translation from the Greek. Okay, so that was his heart. I want to, we need a better Latin translation than the Vulgate that has been passed down for a thousand years and has all sorts of the problems and, and even you might even say corruptions in it. So let's, let's produce a better Latin translation. And to do that, I'm going to start by taking the manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts that I have access to. And he had about six. Okay, so a very small number of Greek manuscripts at his disposal. And in fact, he didn't even have um, the whole Greek New Testament in Greek. So some of the Greek New Testament he produced were translations back from Latin. So he had a Latin translation that he translated back into Greek. And, and all of his, virtually all of his uh, manuscripts came from one geographical region, the, the, the Byzantine family. Okay, so he was working with a very small amount of evidence to produce his, his Greek New Testament. And over the next uh, hundred years or so, his work was revised and modified a lot of times, and, and, and that, that New Testament was being improved and, and um, enhanced. And then in 1633, we have what has come to be known as the Textus Receptus, which is Latin means, which, which is Latin means, you know, the text received by all. And that, by the way, formed the basis of the King James Version. Okay, so you're, you're getting a picture of how you and I as 21st century Americans with our English translations, what is the history that, that precedes the translations you and I have today? That's, that's what the King James Version was, was built upon, the Textus Receptus. And that Greek New Testament, by the way, remained the primary Greek New Testament you know, at, for its time until 1881, when a couple of Cambridge scholars named B.F. Westcott and F.J.A. Hort inaugurated a new era of textual criticism with their work, the New Testament in the original Greek. And their work, um, it, it became widely accepted as, as the, the new standard Greek text. And in their work, they argued against using the Byzantine family as the primary family of manuscripts because the, there, were, there were enough uh, discoveries in, in textual criticism and in biblical scholarship that happened in, the, in the, that hundred-year time from, from the time of Erasmus up up until eight, well, it's more than 100 years, we're looking at a couple hundred years. But there were enough discoveries that they felt compelled to argue against some of the variants in the Byzantine family based on those discoveries. And so um, you had this new era of textual criticism. And, and, and one could argue a superior Greek New Testament. And there have been discoveries, especially in the last 100 to 150 years, that have given us Greek New Testaments today that are, that are vastly superior to anything that, that people from that era had access to. And it wasn't that there was, we're not trying to be critical of, of, those, of those, in the bad way, of those Christians and, and their Bibles. It's just the, the Lord has granted in his providence superior access to manuscripts that give us that much more accuracy to what the authors originally wrote. And so today's Greek New Testament closely resembles the Westcott Hort text. And, and I put a couple of different ones there. If you're, in, if you're a note taker, maybe you're writing some of these things down. Maybe you don't care a lick about what we're talking about, but I'm hoping that there's, if nothing else, it's a little educational for you. Today's Nestle All-In Greek New Testament is now in its 28th edition 
um, that's, that forms the basis of most of your modern English translations today. If you're sitting there, you're probably holding a, uh, perhaps a New American Standard or an English Standard Version or an NLT. That's what I'm preaching from. Maybe you've got an NIV. Uh, most of your modern English translations are, are going to be based on a critical Greek New Testament, such as Nestle Allen's or the United Bible Society's uh, fifth edition of their Greek New Testament, which is pretty much identical to Nestle Allen's with the exception of some, some punctuation differences. And these represent the finest work of modern textual criticism in its efforts to evaluate all the variants and all the evidence we have to arrive at the most accurate Greek New Testament possible. And this process, this science, this discipline of textual criticism helps us to evaluate the evidence as it exists to reconstruct the original text. Now, let's talk for just a couple minutes about some of the principles of textual criticism. How does it operate? Well, for example, when faced with different readings, preference goes to the ones attested by the older manuscripts. So if you have one manuscript from, say, the 3rd century, and you have one from the 8th century, you give preference to the earlier one, because it makes sense that over time, the changes would be introduced into the copying process. Okay, so you give, you give preference to the older text. You also give preference to the one that's represented in a more widely geographical location. Going back to our illustration earlier, I divided you into four groups, and I had you go make copies in separate rooms. And if over time you came back to me, and three of the rooms were the same, and one room had a difference, what would you conclude? What would you conclude? You would conclude that the, the difference, the one different from the other three, is the one that is not faithful to the original. So in this process of evaluating manuscripts, you're not only looking for the earlier variation, you're looking for the one that's more widely attested geographically. Okay? Good textual criticism also generally prefers the more difficult reading because it makes sense that someone making copies, um, you know, they see a problem, what they perceive as a problem, and they might feel tempted, well, I need to smooth that out a little bit. I need to make, I need to correct, maybe, maybe there's a, a literary or grammatical change that I think would make it more clear, and so I'm going to smooth out the, you know, the, the, the rendering of that verse or that passage. And so if, if that's the case, and we're trying to reconstruct what was originally written, then, then we want to give preference to the more difficult reading when you're faced with those two options. Or the shorter reading. Because it is far more likely that someone is going to intentionally add something for clarification than, than, than it is that someone's going to cut something out because they don't like it. It's far more common for that to be the case. But here's the thing. Sometimes uh, the shorter reading is not the better reading because sometimes things get missed, such as when two connected phrases end in the same word, which is a, a fancy thing called homeoteleuton. All right, you get, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just trying to, to give you words and ideas to help understand the process so you understand how we got our Bibles. This is an example of a variant that occurs when two connected phrases end in the same word. Let's take, for example, um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. Okay, so you see it on the screen there in English. Now, it doesn't show up in English because it's a tra English is a translation, but we'll, get, we'll look at the Greek here together. You're, gonna, you're, you're in Greek class this morning, all right? Uh, so here it is in English. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay, so there it is in English. Now let's take a look at it in the Greek. I don't expect anyone in here to be able to read that, and that's fine. But what I do want you to notice 
is the highlighted words right there with the bold and underline. It's the exact same word, which is pronounced eke, which comes from the Greek word echo, to, which is where we get the word has or have or to hold. Okay, so um, here we have two Greek phrases in one verse that end in the same word. I should have put the, the O, which is pronounced ha, on, at the end of the first line with the second line because that's make it more sense for you as you look at it. But here you have two phrases that end with the same word. And so you can imagine a scribe who's, who's got his original that he's copying from on his left and then his, what he's composing on the right, and he looks to the left, and he comes to the end of that first phrase, the first eke, and he writes it down. But then when he looks back to, to continue his copying, what does he pick up? He picks up from the second eke, which has the result of losing everything in between them. You see how that could happen? So what is in red gets left out, and that is one variant that exists out in the world. In, in New, textual, New Testament textual criticism, as they're trying to assess to which rendering of 1 John 2.23 is accurate, here's an example of, of homeoteleoton making sense of why one variant exists because of the other. And that's really, probably you could say, the, the best principle about textual criticism to understand is which reading best explains the origin of the other. So, Yes, we, we prefer the shorter readings because it is far more likely someone's going to add something in for clarification than they're going to cut something out. But not all shorter readings are superior because sometimes a reading is shorter because someone missed a piece because of something like that. And there's, there's dozens of, of other ways that these, things, these kinds of things can happen. All right, so what are some other examples here of how we can put this into practice? We're, we're going to continue Greek class. We're going to continue. You are being New, Te- New Testament textual critics this morning, Okay. And some of you are really fired up about it. I can see on your faces, you're really excited about this kind of thing. Others of you, you're like on the cusp of falling asleep. And I beg you not to fall asleep because I, this, this may be the only time in your life you're exposed to this. And I want you to, to really work through this process together with me. Let's look here at Mark chapter 1, verse 2. All right, here's another example of, of, a, of a passage that has variant readings in, in, manu, in older manuscripts. Okay, so... Right there's variant number one. It says, and this is in English, of course, no one who denies the son has the father. I'm sorry, I jumped in my notes. Here we are. Okay, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. All right, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. That's, I, I would venture to say every Bible you're looking at in here this morning has it like that. As it, is written, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Unless you perhaps have a King James, you might have something different. Okay, what's the variant? Do you see the difference? as it is written in the prophets. So what is different between the two? All right, so in Isaiah has been taken out. So the question is, which one is correct? What do we know about these variants? Well, uh, we know that variant one is earlier, and we know that it is more widespread, okay? Variant two, we know, is confined to the Byzantine family. So already, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, clearly variant one is the one to go with. And, and I think you're right. V- variant one is the preferred variant. The, the, but here's the problem. And this, and this is why you understand why a, a variant two came into existence. When Mark says, um, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, he goes on for the next two verses to quote not just Isaiah. He quotes a little bit of, um, 
uh, Malachi uh, combined with Exodus 23, and then you have his quotation from Isaiah 40. And so you're, you're wondering, well, if he says it is written in Isaiah the prophet, why does he then list, you know, things from other prophets to follow. And you can see why that would make sense for someone making a copy. They would say, well, these quotes that follow are not from Isaiah. They're from Malachi, Exodus 23, and Isaiah. And so you can see where in Isaiah would be taken out. Now, in answer to the question, why, why does he say in Isaiah and then quotes these other two, is in addition, it's, well, it's probably because these verses were probably held as a, a uh, held together as like a collection that as as uh, as uh, people were rabbis were teaching as as people were preaching and they're talking about these things from the old testament they were taking multiple prophets and combining them together in a collection under a common theme and then ascribing the for purposes of recognition the origin to the best known author so there there's explanations for why he would say in isaiah and then quote uh, the other two in addition to it okay but you can see why it would make sense for a scribe to take in Isaiah out because it smooths out the reading and, and seems to remove a discrepancy within the text. And so, even though variant two is the shorter one, we said earlier that shorter is usually preferred. In this case, we're going to prefer variant one, and your Bibles all prefer variant one. And this probably, you may or may not even have a footnote for that. I don't know. Some of them don't even bother putting a footnote there because it's not worth it. But you see some of the issues that we're dealing with in, in trying to work through um, recovering the original work of the original authors. Let's look at one more, and this one's going to be trickier. This comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, and it reads uh, as follows. But I say, this is Jesus speaking, if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Okay, what's the variant? The variant says this, if you are even angry with someone without cause, you are subject to judgment. You see the difference. There's the inclusion of, the last one was taking something out. Here something has been added in. If you're even angry with someone without cause, you are subject to judgment. Well, let's evaluate these variants. Number one, they both have early support, so they kind of cancel each other out in that regard. Both of them could be an intentional change, couldn't they? So the first one could be an intentional change where someone would try to strengthen the, you know, what Jesus is saying by removing the without cause phrase. So we're, we want to beef up Jesus' teaching, so we're going to take that out. But you can see where the other one might be to soften it, right? Because maybe that teaching of being angry with someone, making you subject to, to judgment, sounds like a really, really hard thing to accept. And clearly that can't be right, so we have to add without cause in there to clarify what it means and smooth it out. So you could see where both of them could be an intentional change by, by a scribe for one reason or the other. So they kind of cancel each other out in that regard. Well, number one is shorter. We, we want to give preference to the one that's shorter, okay? But the second one has a wider geographical support, and we want to give credit to the, the one that has a wider geographical support. So, so which one do we pick? They, they cancel each other out in almost every regard. How do we know which one is the right one? Well, the New Living Translation, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, the NIV, the ones, all, all the ones I looked at, they all prefer variant one, but they put a footnote in there. They footnote it. I think with the exception of the New American Standard. I don't think the NASB has a footnote here. But the other three for sure do. And the presence of the footnote indicates what? Well, that there's, there's a question. 
There's a question. They prefer variant one. They, they think variant one is correct, and I think variant one is correct because I think it's far more likely someone was trying to, to soften the words of Jesus than they were trying to harden. So it makes more sense that without cause was added in there to try to smooth things out than it was to remove something to make it a harder saying. Listen, the Beatitudes are hard enough, all right? We don't need a scribe amending the Beatitudes to make them even harder. I think it's far more likely someone softened it to make it easier. But there's a footnote. And, and your modern English translations will indicate that as you're looking at them. Okay? And that's what that means. When you come to a passage like this and you're reading through and you'll notice you get to that, to that verse and there's some sort of asterisk or there's a little reference of some kind and you'll look down at the footnote section and it'll say, some manuscripts say this. That's what they're doing. They're telling you that there's a variant out there. We prefer this one, but it's not completely resolved. Okay? Now, fair enough. All of this is a very vast oversimplification of what uh, textual criticism actually does and how these determinations are made. But these are the types of things that textual critics and translation teams grapple with when they're producing a translation for you and for me. But I don't want this to be trouble to you, to your heart. I hope you're not sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, uh, I didn't know that there, were, that there were differences out there. I didn't know that, that some early manuscripts would say this and others would say that. And now there's, there's people in some room somewhere that I don't know and I, 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 I don't know if I can trust them. And they're making these what seem like arbitrary determinations on, on which is right and which is wrong. Suddenly I don't know what to believe anymore. I hope that's not the, the attitude of your heart this morning. Because here's the thing. It's not as if any of these vari- variants touch any critical theological issue. There is not one variant of, in all the manuscript evidence that we have that calls into question a single major biblical doctrine or even a minor biblical doctrine. Not one. So it's not like you're, you're thinking about the, the central tenets of the faith and the things that you've put your, staked your life upon and as though suddenly those things are in doubt. There's, there's not one variant out there that exists that should do that for you. 99% of the Greek New Testament can be reconstructed beyond any measure of reasonable doubt. And so you can be sure that they are authentic to what the biblical authors wrote. It is true, the, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, maybe you knew. We all know the story, right? Jesus is hanging out and the, the bad guys take the woman caught in adultery and throw her at, at his feet. And they're trying to demand him, a response from him. And the story goes, Jesus, you know, he's drawing something in the sand. I always wondered what he was saying. I, I think it was probably something like Jesus was here or something like that. We don't know what he was saying. But he was writing something in the sand. And then he says, he says what to them? Do you remember? Okay. That's right. He of you, who is without sin cast the first stone. And we love that expression, don't we? But here's the thing, John, that story in John 8 was almost certainly, if not certainly, not in John's original writing. I'm sorry if that's crushing to you, but if you, look, if you have a modern Bible based on a, 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 the best of, of critical tech, textual scholarship, it'll say, it may have it in there, mine has it in there, but it has a line at the beginning and the end of the story and says, this was probably not in, in the original. Okay, so fair enough, John 8. That story in John 8 wasn't there. And oh, by the way, the longer ending of Mark wasn't in there. In Mark's gospel. 
So if you're looking at Mark's gospel and you're there in chapter 16, you know, and you're, you're looking down through there and you're reading the story there in chapter 16 and you, you come to verse 9 and you'll notice that after verse 9 there's some footnotes or a line or something saying the earlier manuscripts don't have the rest of the ending. Okay, fair enough. Take John 8, that story in John 8 out. Take the second half of Mark's ending and, and chapter 16 out. And, and okay, those were probably not in the original works. But, but that doesn't change one aspect of the Christian faith. It doesn't undermine the rest of the scriptures in any sense of the word. And it shouldn't be a cause for you or anyone to question or doubt the truth of the scriptures. In fact, of all the, the, the variants that exist, those are the only two passages where more than two verses are in question. Where, where the, the vast majority of, of whatever problems exist in that 1% of the, of the New Testament are confined to, to very short expressions. And in fact, half of all variants have to do with what's called the movable new. Okay, so what is the movable new? It's when a Greek N or new is placed at the end of a word that ends in a vowel so that a consonant exists between the vowel at the end of one word and the vowel at the beginning of a second word. Because what happens when you put two vowels together and form a new sound? It's called a what? Does anybody remember from English class? Where's Abby? Is Abby in here? She would know this. What's it called when you put two vowels together in a single uh, syllable to form its own sound? Diphthong. Oh, I love that word. And that's something you just want to call the guy on the road that just cut you off. You lousy diphthong. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that in the pulpit, but that's, you might be thinking it. Now, when you have in Greek the, the, the ending of a word that is in a vowel and the beginning of the next word that's a vowel, sometimes a new is put there to add a consonant in between those two vowel sounds. Okay, it's, it's actually called a diuresis. Okay, when you have two separate vowel sounds in adjacent uh, syllables that aren't a diphthong. And so you have this movable new that's placed there and some copies have it and some don't. And guess what? The presence of the new or the absence of the new does not change the meaning of the word. And half of all the variants out there of that 1% of your Greek New Testament are movable news. So it's not like the, the sky is falling, everyone's Bible says something different, all the Greek New Testament is in question. Far from that, there's nothing in question that actually matters. And so, what's the point? What's the point? Well, the point is this. And I hope you get this point. If you get no other point from the last few weeks, I hope you get this one. You can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible. And that's my goal here today. It's not to impress anybody with fancy words and Greek on the screen or to make you think that I'm super smart because if you spend more than 30 seconds with me, you'll know I'm not as smart as I may. Well, I don't know if I even look smart. If I look smart, I promise you I'm not as smart as I look. I promise you. My goal is not just to educate you so you can come out, you know, with your head a little bigger and more wrinkles in your brain. All right? That's not my goal. Yes, I want to educate. I want to teach you something. But the goal is to strengthen your confidence in the Word of God. So that you know where it came from. So that you're educated. You know where it came from. So that you can have confidence and assurance. And so that you're equipped to respond to the, the, the accusations in the world. And they're out there. 
I want you to be able to pick your Bible up with confidence and not have to wonder whether or not what you're reading is what was actually inspired and originally written down. You can have confidence that what you have is the inspired text of Scripture from cover to cover. You might disagree philosophically with the idea of a God to begin with. And that's, that is a, a fundamental sort of dogma that you bring to any discussion. I believe at the core of my being that the supernatural does not exist. God cannot exist. Therefore, I, there's no way I can believe in anything like divine inspiration because there's no such thing as divine. Okay, well, let's have that debate. That's another debate. But if you accept that the divine is possible, if you accept in the possibility of the supernatural that we didn't just appear one day, but that there's a... a, 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 a an unmoved mover who, who started everything and who was superintending the, the cosmos and who has entered into it and has revealed himself. If you believe any of those things, which you and I do, well, then you can rest knowing that the Bible you have is the very one inspired and faithfully preserved and transmitted down through the ages. Luke affirmed to Theophilus, and by extension, he affirms to you and to me today, 2,000 years later, that his work was done carefully. Carefully. Luke, from what, from what the, New, the New Testament assures us, was something like a physician, a doctor. Doctors don't get their doctorates or their medical degrees by being sloppy and careless. Luke was careful in his investigation. Luke was seeking a work that was accurate. It's not good enough to have just a nice story. It has to be a true story. Because if it's just a story, it has no bearing on your life. And we're going to look at that next week. If the resurrection did not actually occur, then you're still dead in your sins and trespasses. It's all pointless. If Jesus did not literally, physically, in the flesh, come back to life and conquer the grave, then what's the point of what we're doing here today? Accuracy is everything to the Christian faith. You lose the accuracy, you lose the historicity, you lose it all. And frankly, I don't want to stake my whole life on something that's just a nice story. And Luke doesn't want you to do that either. He's careful and it's accurate. Why? Well, so that you and I can be certain of the truth. You and I can be certain of the truth. And for the church, for 2,000 years, we can be certain in the work of those who've gone through painstaking efforts to ensure that, that what Luke wrote and what the, the other gospel writers wrote and New Testament authors wrote is what you and I get to read today. And I think that's exactly what your Bible is. It hasn't been corrupted over the, over the centuries. In fact, I think it's improved, even improved. Not in the sense that things were made better, but that things are more accurate. That's the beautiful, you and I get to live on this side of history after the beautiful fruit of modern textual criticism. That you have that much more certainty that what you're reading is the actual exact word of God. You can build your life upon it, as we've been talking about all service long here this morning. The only errors that you and I have to be concerned about are those by whom Peter warns about in 2 Peter, which, by the way, I recognize that your bulletin say the sermon text is there in 2 Peter, um, 
and it is the sermon text there in 2 Peter chapter 3. And, and this is, I think, the first and probably the last sermon of my life where I read the sermon text at the end of the sermon. <laughs> I hope you'll forgive me for that. But I wanted to give you, you know, 35 minutes of introduction so that you can hear Peter when he says this in, let me get my slide in the right place, chapter 3. Look what he says. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom God gave him, speaking of these things in all of his letters. Some of his comments are hard to understand. And those who are ignorant and unstable have twisted his letters to mean something quite different, just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their destruction. What are the errors that you and I need to be concerned about here today? Well, I'll tell you, it's not the errors of some scribe in some dark room 1,600 years ago. Because none of those errors have resulted in us not knowing what the Word of God actually says. Now, there are some out there. Uh, Take the New Testament professor at UNC Chapel Hill, world-renowned scholar of the New Testament, who, by the way, is not a Christian, who will tell you that there's more mistakes in the Greek New Testament than there are words. And his goal is to do what? It's to undermine your faith, to doubt the Scriptures. Listen, those are not the errors that you and I need to be concerned about. You and I need to be concerned about those who seek to twist the Scriptures. That's that's where you and I need to be concerned here today. There's a whole denomination that we are theological cousins to, that is run by people from the top down who twist the scriptures. And what is the result of that process? If you want to trace the origins of all the problems in the United Methodist Church today, it starts right here with people don't believe that that God's word is inspired. They don't believe that it is without error. They don't accept the Greek New Testament as we have received it. They don't believe that this is God's authoritative word. It is up for you to decide what is true and what is not true, and you get to pick and choose what applies to me and what it means, and I can leave the things out that I don't want, and I can make my own decisions aside or apart from and even over top of the scriptures, and then because of that, that whole denomination is crumbling to pieces. And I am in the EMC because we are not going down that road. We are not going to do it. And this church is not going to do it. As long as I draw breath, as long as you want me standing in this pulpit and occupying my office next to the ladies' room in the other building, we will not go down that road. We will stake it all on the truth of God's word from cover to cover. And we will not question it. We may have questions, and there are answers to the questions for those who are open and, and, and will hear and listen and take the time to do what we're trying to do here today. Absolutely, there's questions. But we will not question God's word. We will not doubt his word. We will instead build our lives upon it. As Peter warns, be on guard. It's the next verse. That's the next verse. There's though, there are those who are ignorant and unstable who twist 
Paul's letters and the other scriptures, by the way, did you notice Peter's calling Paul's work scripture? We, call, we talked about that two weeks ago. Peter viewed Paul's work as scripture. And, and he's saying people take Paul's works like they do the other works of scripture and they twist it because they're ignorant and unstable. And he says right here, so therefore be on guard, then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Friends, you and I have a, a solid rock. How will you lose your solid rock? By listening to those who Paul tells Timothy are with itching ears gathering around teaching that suit their own desires. People who are intolerant of sound doctrine, ironically, in the name of tolerance. To be tolerant today means to be intolerant of God's word. Well, if that's your definition of tolerance, then count me out. Be on guard. Then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people. And by the way, there's two main ways that people twist the scriptures. There's bad exegesis, which means how you interpret a text. And man, there's a lot of that. People who take it, they have an idea that they want to share, and they'll say the idea, and then they'll go find two, three, four, five verses that seem to back up what they're saying without doing any work of understanding what those verses were saying in context or how they, how they are viewed within the broader scope of Scripture. And so they just want to make their point, and they want you to listen to them. And to make their point, they'll go find all their proof texts for it. Listen, that is bad exegesis. That's why when I preach a text, I take a text and I expound the text within context. I hope you sense that. That's, what, that's because why? Because we want to hear what the scriptures have to say, not what Pastor Sean has to say. You're not here to listen to me. You're here to listen to God's word be expounded upon by me. And those are two very different things. And so you have people who twist the scriptures by doing that. You also have people who twist the scriptures like the professor I mentioned a moment ago by causing you to doubt their reliability. And Peter says, be on guard against both. Be on guard against both. No, you can be certain today, church, of the trustworthiness of the word of God. The good book is the only firm foundation upon which you and I can build our lives. And I know you believe that, but my hope is that as the result of this morning, you believe it all the more. And you can, you can be confident that when you open your scriptures, you're hearing God speak. God breathed words for you. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for um, the great, well, 76 years of history at this church here on Rabbit's Corner of men and women. Maybe they don't all have college degrees, and that's good, but men and women who believe your word and they've built their lives upon it. They stake everything on, it, on the, its truth and they don't doubt it. They, have, they may not understand everything. None of us understands everything. And there are questions. Of course there's questions that come up and, and we seek to have answers to the questions. There's times where 
where my kids question something that I say or do because they don't understand or they don't have all the facts or the details, but they never have to question my heart. And Lord, we don't have to question yours. You have exposed and revealed your heart in the world through your word. And we have access to it. And you invite us to it. And your word changes us. The proof is in the pudding. Every single person here today whose life has been impacted by, the, by you it has been through your word at work in someone's life, spoken over them, prayed over them, read to them in some form or fashion. Maybe they were in a hotel room and they opened a drawer and a Gideon Bible was sitting. Who put that there? A Christian put that there. And their lives were changed because you, through your, the, the power and presence of your spirit, always always superintend the reading and proclamation of your word. And Lord, that is what all we ever want to do here at this church. Help us to be faithful in that regard. Help us to be bold in our defense and in our convictions and, and be willing to speak the truth in love, always in love, but speak the truth in love to those who would disagree and those who would challenge and even seek to undermine. Lord, those are precious people created in your image that you died to save and may we be willing to die to ourselves that they, that they might see you. And may, but may we also be very uh, convinced in, in our um, presentation of your word to them. Lord, help us to do all these things in a way that brings you glory. And never about us, it's always about you. Help us to be a church of one book as we prayed last week. We continue to pray that this day and tomorrow and every day as long as this church still exists. We want to be a church in a denomination of one book. Lord, we love your book and we love you. Thank you for this time we've had here together. Bless the remaining time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.